We are like in the crosshairs of almost every major hurricane. Come on, it seems. So what we're going to talk today, we're going to talk about divine direction. We're going to talk about storms. What do storms do? They freak us out. Anybody get freaked out? Come on, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I've got a Cat 5 coming over my head. I'm like, what? No, thank you. Disruptive. Storms are disruptive. No power. No gas. Right? No food, no water at the, at the grocery store. Yeah, it's like, it's, like, it's like three weeks of disruption. The week before, the week immediately after, and now this week is where you're trying to put everything back together. Very disruptive. Everything's very disruptive. It's what storms do. Storms inconvenience us. They make things inconvenient. I was coming over to the church yesterday, coming down bird, they're, tear, they're cleaning up the trees, and it took 40 minutes just to get down the street. And that was a big inconvenience. And you could see people were really freaked out. Uh, we left town, we went up to Orlando, and when we got up to Orlando, it took us seven and a half hours to get there. Seven and a half hours. There are people up there, it took them 11, right? See, I lived down in Homestead, so it was like a little bit like, I was like, ah, three, whatever, we're going to ride it out. Then they showed the model, and they showed the Cat 5 going right up over Homestead. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> I'm not quite, although all my Homesteaders are like, yeah, exactly, we're leaving. So I thought, ah, if it's a three, whatever, two, three, shmi, whatever. I can, we've been through those before, but then the five, I was like, no, thank you. My son's like, it's not that big a deal, Dad. I'm like, a five, you lose your roof, Elias. He's like, these walls are brick. I go, I know. We got shutters, I know. I go, but you lose the roof. He's like, we can lose the roof. I'm like, yeah. You lose the roof, then you got real problems. Hello. So I want to do this really brief thing, and I'm going to bend your mind on some of this. Some of it's going to be an affirmation to you. Some of it's going to be a little bit of a mind bend. But I think it's important that we get right perspectives. We need to have the right perspective of the Lord, and we need to have a right perspective of who we are. And a lot of our times and the way our relationship with God is affected is by our perceptions. The way we live out our faith and the dysfunctions within the way we live out our faith a lot of times are based upon our perceptions. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I hope, and I'm going to get into the other, uh, Acts 27 for you, but I want to just do this brief thing, the theology of storms, okay? It's more of a theology of the nature of God, but it's part, it plays into this. Say with me, this is going to help you. <laughs> Say, God is not sending the storms. Crickets. I'll just let the crickets be there for a minute. Say this with me. But the Lord will use them. How do you know Jesus isn't sending the storms, Kevin? Well, Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus said, as you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So my question to you is, how many storms in the New Testament did Jesus create? None. How many storms did he redirect? None. He didn't go, hey, instead of calming the storm, I think I'm going to direct it over here because you people are bad. You know? He didn't do that. Jesus calmed the storm. And in the New Testament in particular, the storms are demonic origin almost all the time. Every time there's a storm in the New Testament, it is not of the origin of God. It is of the origin of, the, of demonic. Jesus is on a storm. He's in a boat. He's sleeping. He's going to the other side. The disciples are freaking out, if you know the story. He wakes up and says, peace be still. Right? Two things going on here. Number one, he spoke to the spirits behind the storm. Why was there a storm? Because the devils knew that Jesus was going to the other side and they were trying to sink him in a boat. So there was a tempest. 
So much so that the fishermen, Peter, James, and John, were all fishermen, right? They'd been on the water. If you're a fisherman and you've been on the water and you know storms, storms probably don't freak you out. You know what I'm saying? So they, they, these guys were freaked out for a reason. This was a storm like they'd never seen, so Jesus calms the storm. So what's happening? The enemy is trying to destroy him, so there was demonic origin behind that storm. Jesus walks up, one of my favorite lines is he says, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you have faith? Now, why is he saying that? This is important. What I'm about to tell you is really important. Why did Jesus ask the disciples, where was your faith? I'm sorry, if you look at that from a natural occurrence, and there's like a tempest blowing around the boat, and the boat's being swamped with water, didn't, wouldn't you think you were going to sink? Wouldn't you think you were going to go down? So when he's asking him that question, what is he saying? He said, where was your faith? What he's saying is he said, I told you we were going to the other side. I didn't tell you we were going out into the sea to drown. I told you get in the boat because we're going to the other side. Why did you not have faith in what I told you? That's the issue. He wasn't talking about their circumstances. He wasn't talking about their situations. Why didn't you have faith in your situation? He said, why didn't you have faith in what I told you? I told you we're going to the other side. I didn't say you're going to swing, sink, in the, sink in the ocean. You know what I'm saying? This is what happens to us. A lot of times storms come into our life, and they're contrary to the Word of God. They're completely opposite. They're opposite to God's promises. They're opposite even to the Word that is spoken over your life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this and it turns into that, and you're like, what? How is this and that? Storms were not given by God. They're used by God. Here's a really basic theology. If you want to understand what's wrong with the world, every uh, good, say this with me, good God, bad devil. Right? You want some verses? I'll give them to you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of light, in whom there is no shadow of turning. In other words, he brings good and perfect, and he brings light, and he's not changing. That's what it's telling us. So if it's good and perfect, it's from the Lord. If it's life-giving and light-bearing, it is from the Lord. If it's not, guess what? Jesus tells us in John 10.10, 10, the thief, that is the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So he categorizes it for us. All of this is not from me, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. You understand that? Good God, bad devil. The world has fallen, it's under sin. And so bad things happen to good people. Until Christ returns and redeems, pale and genesia, it renews all things, this is the way it's going to be. We are the hope bearers, we are the light bringers, we are the cities on a hill, we are the light of the world, that's who we are. But the culture, the world, and the systems of the world will not fully change until Christ returns. Our mission and our mandate is to go in to bring change. Our mission and our mandate is to go and bring the kingdom into these areas, but the whole system itself will not change until Christ fully returns. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. He's the prince and the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience. We're children of light. Bad things happen to good people because when Adam fell, the earth fell with him. Poisonous doctrine within the church, and I'm going to run right through it. Here's why. Something called Reformed theology. You may not have to understand it, but you're going to hear me talk about it because it's like, this is why it's wrong. It's, wrong, it's right in so many ways. So a good portion of what, what's known as Reformed theology is correct. Righteousness, appropriation, sin, uh, salvation, all of those things are right. The biggest part of Reformed theology that is not right is a doctrine called sovereignty. They make a statement that sounds oh so pleasant and oh so wonderful. God is sovereign over all. And everybody would go, absolutely, God is sovereign over all. But what they're saying is, God is ultimately the one responsible 
for everything. And that is not the gospel. I've had this debate with many people. Oh, God's sovereign over all. I'm like, why do we put up guardrails? If it's God's will that somebody crossed the line and hits me head on, well, then so be it. You know, well, we need to have wisdom. But that's not what you said. You said God's sovereign over all. And I always ask the question, is he sovereign over rape? Of course not. Is he sovereign over murder? Of course not. Is he sovereign on all of, over all the injustices and the famine and everything that's there? He is not. And when I say he's not sovereign over it, what I'm saying is he's not responsible for it. You understand what I'm saying? He will use it, but he is not the author of it. You get this? I'm telling you, what I'm teaching you, this is, this is what the Bible says. But what has happened over a period of time is that the Reformed theology has crept its way into the church, and this is now how we teach. And what it really is, is it's a justification for the absence of power. That's what it really is. Well, why didn't a person get healed? Must not be God's will. God's sovereign over all. Why did that happen? I don't know. God's sovereign over all. Because the leaders don't have their theology worked out, because the leaders don't have their doctrine worked out, they create their own theology. And they create their own doctrine to justify the absence of power. It's called the gospel of reduction. Here's what God says, and here's what we experience. So instead of raising ourselves to the level of God's promise, we reduce the promises to the level of our experience. And that is the sin of unbelief. And that is the great trauma and the sin of the church. Instead of God said this, so we need to press in and keep changing and keep pursuing until this becomes our reality. We take the gospel and we lower it to the level of our experience. That's what we do. And it's all part of that. And the biggest churches, or all the, they had a couple of really powerful leaders, very charismatic, all teaching reform doctrine, and all these denominations, including the Spirit-filled, were getting around these people, and all of them were adopting the spirit of this, this doctrine until a couple of these key leaders fell. Now, I'm not saying it was God's will that these guys fell, but I'm saying that God, there was an infiltration that was happening that is insanely dangerous because what it does is it neuters the power. It doesn't keep people from being saved. Well, they even say that. What they do is they do what's called Calvinism. They, they say, well, it's God's will. You got saved, it was God's will. You went to hell, it was God's will. Everything's God's will. Everything. You ask them and they'll go, yeah, no, it's God's will. You're the elect. It's God's will that you got saved. Well, you're, you're such and such, your family member went to hell. Well, it was God's will that that happened. That's not true. The Bible says it is God's will that none perish, but that all come to salvation. It even says it's his will. That's a hard one to get around if you're a reformer. A real hard one. Now, I'm in the camp with the reformers on a lot of this. Justification, atonement, substitutionary atonement, all the, all the right stuff, I'm down. They, those guys got that right. But when it comes to that teaching, they couldn't be more wrong. They're wrong. God isn't working in the world today, they will say. There are no miracles. Really? Really? He's taken away all the miracles. This is my favorite one. There's no more miracles, Kevin. The season of miracles died with the apostles. You know what I ask them? All of them? All of them? Including salvation? Oh, no, no. He left salvation. Salvation itself is a miracle. When you become born again, poof! You just experienced, anybody know what I'm talking about? Something changed in you when you got born again. That is a miracle. That's the joy of your salvation. If you've forgotten it, you need to go back and remember it. Right? And if you've never experienced, just wait to the end and we're going to pray and you're going to encounter it. That's how it works. So he's taken away all the miracles except salvation. Where does it say that? 
It doesn't say that anywhere in the text. Nowhere. They have no scripture to back that up. Except for one arbitrary verse, and that which is complete will pass away when that which is full is come. I mean, it's not even in context when they quote it. It's nonsense. Nonsense. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is your right perception of God. If you believe that God is walking around with a baseball bat ready to drop a storm on you at a moment's notice, you will not relate to Him correctly. And again, it's a lie of the devil to separate the relationship, to put a gap in the relationship. You can be born again, but you can perceive Him as evil. You can perceive Him as good. You can see, oh, I'm just a worm, no longer a man. You know, I'm just so glad Jesus saved me. Or you can rise to the level of what he says. Son and daughter. Overcomer. More than a conqueror. That's what he says. You understand this? We can, we, we, our perception makes everything possible. We, the way we relate to him. You won't come to him if you believe he's evil. You won't come to him because you yourself will never be perfect. So you'll constantly be living in judgment and condemnation. Oh, I can't. Oh, man. Well, I watched an R-rated movie the other day. I don't know. I don't know if I can ask Jesus for anything. Come on. Help me out. Oh, I don't know. I was around some people smoking cigarettes, man. I don't know. I don't know if I can ask God for anything. I kind of told a lie the other day. I don't know. I don't know if I can ask Jesus for anything. You're under, you're under guilt and condemnation. It's not of God. You've got to get it straight. He's a good, good father all the time. Jesus is all, say it with me. Jesus, Jesus. is always in a good mood. His wrath He's reserved until the day of wrath. There will be a day of wrath, everyone. You don't have to worry. He will come. But His wrath He has reserved until the day of wrath. That's why it's called the day of the Lord. It's the day when grace ends and judgment begins. Mm -hmm. And the Christian is not judged. We're not. There is therefore no condemnation. But the world itself will be judged by the Father at one point. But now is not that time. We're under the dispensation of grace. A kindness, a forgiveness, a, a, an ability that we're men and women can come to Him because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads them to repentance. Not the judgment of God. And I'm all for the judgment of God. I got lots of people, I talk to them, they're going to tell me all oh, this and this and this, and I say, well, there's nothing left for you then, bro, except fear of impending judgment. I don't have a problem telling people, is there a hell? Hell yeah, there's a hell. It's an inconvenient truth. Al Gore doesn't have the market cornered on an inconvenient truth. Hell is an inconvenient truth. Nobody likes it, but it's a reality. Just saying. You say, I don't believe in hell. I say, great, don't believe in gravity. Jump off the building, see who wins. Hell is a reality whether we want to believe it or not. It is a truth whether we want to believe it or not. Christ is Savior whether we want to believe it or not. You can say Buddha, Muhammad, Allah, L. Ron Hubbard, Tom Cruise, whoever you want to say is your Savior. You can say, I'm my own God. But the truth of the matter is there's salvation given under no one else except Christ. Amen. Name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Nobody else. He's not one among many. He's the one and only. Amen. One rock star, his name is Jesus. So I don't believe that. Well, good luck. <laughs> it's a truth. It's an inconvenient truth, but it's true. We have life in Christ. There's salvation in no other. Acts chapter 27. Here's the deal. Paul's going into a storm. It's one of the storms in the Bible. Paul, he's an apostle. You're an apostle. You're an apostolic generation. Did you know that? So the Bible tells you you're sent ones. You are a sent one. You have Christ in your heart. Say, I don't even know my Bible. It doesn't matter. The minute you receive Jesus, you have a mandate placed over your life. 
Why is that? Because God calls you what you are long before you get there. He doesn't call you what you are once you've arrived. He says, this is who you are, and now you need to live towards who you are until you fully begin to manifest who you are. That's how he works. That's how he works. We wait and say, well, when he'll call me that when I get there. No, he's already called you that. Apostolic generation. You're already called. We begin to, what does it mean? Apostolic means sent one. There's a difference in the Bible, and I pointed this out first service, so I guess I'll do it again this one. There's a difference in the Bible between the ministry of an apostle and the office of an apostle. There's a difference in the Bible between the ministry of the prophet and the office of the prophet. There's a difference in the Bible between the ministry of evangelism and the office of an evangelist. There's a difference in the Bible between the ministry of a pastor and the office of a pastor. A ministry of a teacher or the office of a pastor. The church has the ministry gifts of all of them, but they don't necessarily hold the office of them. All are sent. Matthew 28, go. Sounds like sent to me, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel. That sounds like a sent mission to me. 1 Corinthians, all of us have a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, where we're reconciling God, reconciling people unto Christ, telling them, hey, you need to get saved. All, that's not just a pastor, that's an apostolic calling. There's an evangelistic calling over the church. Doesn't mean you're an evangelist, but you have a responsibility and a ministry of evangelism. It's on you. You have pastoral ministry on you. What does that mean? You care for other people. It's amazing what happens when you allow the church to care for one another. People start caring for one another. It's amazing. That's what pastoral ministry means, is care. It's care. Small group, care. How you doing? How you feeling? What's going on? My calling is more apostolic. My office I carry. Apostolic office is builder, leader, director. That's more where I, I kind of fit that lane. All of you are sent ones. You're sent to do something. What is that? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Ministry of the prophet? I don't know about that, Pastor. Really? Earnestly desire spiritually gifts, but especially that you may what? Oh! God would that all of his people... That's right. Acts 2, your sons and daughters will... Right. Ministry of the prophetic, as opposed to the office of the prophetic. The prophetic office is the one who models, teaches, and instructs in the, in the, in the ministry. The apostle models, teaches, and instructs in the ministry. The teacher, you have teaching gifts, you have teaching ministry, all can teach. Not all have a teaching office. The office of the teacher is to teach and instruct and model the ministry. You get it? The office is to model it to the saints, to equip the saints to work that ministry. Who told you you could do that? Jesus. How are you qualified? Because he told you it's yours. And so this is who we are, and we need to live towards who we are until we become real with who we really are. Lay hands on the sick. You should get up and do it. Say, let's try this out. Let's just go for it. I mean, you should try this stuff out because you're going to see that it's going to activate with you. It's not withheld. He doesn't withhold his spirit. Say, is Jesus willing? He's always willing. Acts chapter 27, Paul an apostle, he was sent to build churches, sent to raise up Christians sent to train and teach the Christians, sent to reach the lost, and sent to invade culture with the kingdom of God. He got arrested. Paul had a prophetic word over his life. The prophetic word was that he was going to go to Rome and he was going to testify to Caesar's house. God told him, this is what you're going to do. He just didn't tell him, this is how you're going to get there. Right? I'm going to send you to Rome, you're going to teach, you're going to do all these things. But, he, but Paul wasn't planning on being arrested and taken there in chains. <laughs> That's what happened. 
So he got arrested. He's being sent to Rome. So the story I'm going to lay out for you, we have three characters. We have Paul. He's being arrested. He's being sent to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. He appealed to Caesar. He said, no one can judge me because I'm a Roman citizen except Caesar himself. So he invoked Roman law. Therefore, he was being transferred to Rome. He's under the care of a centurion, not just any centurion, a, centurion, a captain of the imperial guard was who was taking him there. And so the imperial centurion had orders to get Paul to Rome. That was his orders, as quickly as possible. And in Acts 27, we see these other two characters. There's a guy named, he's a ship owner, and there's another guy named the, who's called the pilot or the captain. So what's happening is we get ready to read this, this, these verses. Is Paul had been traveling by boat, and he lands in this place. I can't remember the name. I'll remember it in a minute. It's like scattered on me. But he takes it. So they traveled. They land in this port. And now they're going to transfer ships. So the centurion goes and finds a boat. And what you could do as a Roman is you could commandeer the vessel. Romans could come. They could compel you to carry their pack with them a mile. They could say, hey, I'm not carrying my stuff. You are. That's why the word, we get the word extra mile. Go the extra mile. Because the Romans could compel anyone that was under their authority. They could make you, literally, pull you off of whatever you were doing and tell them to carry their pack, and they had the right, by Roman law, to make you carry it for a mile. And Jesus said, don't just do it one, do it two. Go further, right? That's where we get that from. So these Romans had the opportunity to commandeer a vessel. So if a Roman came up and said, oh, I like your ship, Lily. Where are you guys heading? Oh, no, you're not, going to you're not going there anymore. You're going to Rome. Why? Because I'm a Roman centurion under imperial authority, and we're now commandeering your boat, and you're taking us to Rome. That's how it worked. You couldn't say anything about it because the Romans' view was we, not only do we control the world, but we manage the seas, and you, you travel on the safety of our oceans, or the safety of the Mediterranean, so we're, we, they had the ability to compel. So probably what's going on here is that the centurion is compelling the captain and the owner of the boat to go to Rome. And so there's a lot of eagerness to get ready. The owner of the boat probably has all of his goods on board, right? Perishables, bananas, grapes, whatever got going on, whatever he's got, he's got to get it to port, and now he's got to go to Rome, so they're in a hurry. Let's make this happen. Next slide. The centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and they put us on board. Doesn't tell them whether they're going to Rome. They're going in the right direction, though. They made slow headway for many days, and they had difficulty off the coast of Sindus. You try to pronounce these words if you don't think I'm doing a good job, sir. Like, I don't know if it says that. Okay, come on up. Here. <laughs> when the wind did not allow us to hold course, we sailed off the Lee of Crete, opposite of Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because now it was the day after Pentecost. What he's saying in that is that it's now September, October. So it's the storm season in the Mediterranean, kind of like our storm season here. They're in the storm season. So Paul knows they're in the storm season. And so he says, hey, I can see that this voyage is not going to go well. It's going to be disastrous. It's going to bring loss to you, to the ship, the cargo, and to our lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to Paul, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship, who were in a hurry. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority of them, they all took a vote. We're going. And so they were hoping to reach the port of Phoenix, which is a harbor in Crete, facing north by southwest. So when they found a gentle wind, they began to go off. So they wait. They got all their buddies voting. This is where we're going. Wind starts calming down. And they say, okay, we're going to take off. Verse, four, verse 14, but before very long, a hurricane force winds came upon them. Can I get a witness? Okay. Before very long, hurricane came upon them. 
called the Northeaster, swept down from the island, and the ship was caught by the storm. So what it's saying is that the ship was literally carried by the storm out to sea, and they couldn't control it. Anybody ever have situations like that? Events in your life carry you out to sea, take you out to places you didn't want to go, right? You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're like, how did I get here? Next slide. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. The storm continued raging, and they finally gave up all hope of being saved. You ever had that happen to you? You have circumstances pressing down on you so hard, and for so long, you give up hope. It's never going to change. It's never going to end. This is it. You know? Sign the papers. Whatever we got to do, it's over. Just turn out the lights. The party's over. And after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice. Aha. Because you didn't, so now you, have, so you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. How does he know this? Because last night I spoke with the Lord, whom I serve, and beside me stood an angel. He has an angelic encounter in the Bible. And he says, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand trial before Caesar. Just like I told you, you're going to Rome to testify, just like I said. So keep up your courage, and, have, and I have faith in God that it will happen. So what's going on here? Are you ready for this? It's going to help some of you. God told him something, and it didn't look like it was working out. God said, you're going to Rome, and you're going to testify before Caesar. Well, he's on a ship, and he looks like he's going to drown in the ocean. And so what he's doing is he's praying. And he's like, uh, Jesus, is this Rome thing still on? You know, are we still good with the whole Rome thing? And the Lord says, yeah, and an angel shows up and affirms it. The circumstances were lying to him. The circumstances were telling him something that God did not say. God didn't say, I'm going to send you and you're going to die off the island of Crete and you're going to drown. So just, you know, get your stuff ready, Paul, because it's, it's over. You know, you're coming to glory land, whatever. You get this? Circumstance come upon him that he was not anticipating. And here's the deal. Say this with me. It's okay, it's okay. to ask the Lord as many times as I need. You can ask him as many times as, I need, as you need, did you say this? Are you telling me this? Is this your way? Is this your way? Is this your way? So what he wants, he wants to instruct you by his word, by his spirit, through wise counsel, and you step out into what he says. But when you step out, odds are it's not going to go your way. Just saying. Mark it down. Odds are, why? Because you've got a bad devil that doesn't want you walking in destiny. You've got a bad devil that doesn't want you walking in purpose. What we do is we do this. God tells us something, we step out, and then we go, oh, it must not have been God's will. If it was God's will, it would have been easy. Well, who told you that? You step out into it, and the circumstances come upon you, and what you do is you get your bearing, and you say, Lord, did you say this? And he says, yes, and you keep moving. And you can do that, and you can ask as many times as necessary. And He doesn't have a problem with you asking him. What he has a problem with is you doing nothing. Say this with me. Jesus does not have a problem with questions. He has a problem with cowardice. Mm-hmm. I give you verses for that. Cowardly have no inheritances in the kingdom of God. The man who buried the talent was a coward. Jesus doesn't have a problem with you asking him questions. He has a problem with you being a coward with what he's told you to do. Ask him as many times as you need, but don't be a coward. People say, you're a fool, Kevin. You know what, I've always used to tell people this. Because they say, you know, sometimes whatever, I'm reckless. Whatever it is they say about me, and I've had people say plenty of things about me. But I pursue the Lord. 
And the point of the matter is, as people have called me fool, and I would say, I've said this to myself a long time ago, I would rather be a fool than a coward. Come on. I would rather be a fool than a coward. So you can call me fool. You can call me stupid. You can call me headstrong. You can call me uh, self-assured to the point of delusional. You can call me whatever you want to call me, but you will not call me a coward. That, is what you, that mark will not be over my life. Nowhere in my life will you call me coward. Nowhere. And I could put it up for your examination and you can look down the list and not one mark will be there that I was a coward. Not one. Not one. Because I know what high value that is in the kingdom. Cowardliness, courage is the high value of the kingdom. Lion faith is a high value of the kingdom. Cowardliness is about as low as you can go. So if you're, if you're living a life cowardly before the king, you need to upgrade yourself. You need an upgrade. I don't know where you're being a coward, but wherever you're being a coward, you need an upgrade. Maybe it's something he's told you to do. Maybe it's a way that you're doing. Whatever it is he said that you're not doing, you're a coward. You're a coward. And until you deal with your cowardice, you will go nowhere. You must, you must know that. You have to understand that. Call me a fool all you want, but you won't call me coward. We're going up the mountain. We're going to believe God. We're going to step out. We're going to see where this thing goes. <laughs> Doing big things, man. Spoils to the one who dares. That's right. That's right. What we do is we leave it in Neverland, right? We leave our dreams in Neverland. We leave our visions in Neverland. One day, someday, somewhere over the rainbow, this is where people are. They're either somewhere over the rainbow, they're in Neverland because it's never going to happen because you're not ever going to do anything with it, so you may as well just put your dream in Neverland because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen by itself. Unless you are bold and courageous and take risks, it will not happen. Jesus isn't going to wave his fairy wand. That's how we treat Jesus, like he's fairy Jesus. That's not how he is. He tells you something and he expects you to act. Go and face a giant, David. How'd you like to try that on? We, we cheat that like a Sunday school story. I mean, literally, he's facing a giant. He could die. Go and put your life on the line. Risk everything about you. Risk it all. That's what he did. Would you? Would you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Would I? Would I risk it all? Would I give it all off of his word? Would I do everything and put everything on the line because he told me? You say, what if I miss God? Do you know what? Even if you miss God, he moves by faith. He will help you. Come on, I got one guy in the room. Even if you miss it, he's not looking at the mistake. He's looking at the faith. His hand will be out to pull you up out of the water. You're not going to drown. You won't. Faith is what moves the kingdom. Faith is the currency of heaven. Human need, this is where we think. We think God is moved by human need. Say it with me. Jesus is not moved by human need. Oh, I know that bothers some of you. But you know why? He's done everything he's going to do about human need. It's called the cross. He's done everything he's going to do about human need. He's released the anointing to his body. He's not doing anything more about human need. He will activate his power and his purposes according to faith. And if there is no faith, there will be nothing changed. Nothing. Nothing. Where's Heidi Baker? Where is she? Anybody know where she in? What's, what country is she in? What country? Heidi Baker? She's in Africa. Horrible place. Poor as it can be. 
This woman comes in there and she has nothing. She understands and begins to activate the principles of faith and she starts changing nations and changing villages and changing regions. Was God not moved by the human need that he saw in Africa? Of course he's moved by the human need he sees in Africa or wherever, Haiti, Dominican Republic. Pick a place. Of course he's moved by the human need. But he's waiting for it to matter to his body. If it doesn't matter to his body, it doesn't matter to him. He cares. He's waiting. He wants to do something, but he needs faith. Until someone steps in faith and begins to believe God, it doesn't activate. Faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. Absolutely. Won't happen without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For they that come to him must believe that he is what? He is who he says he is and that he will reward those who seek him. Those who approach him and act upon faith, God will move on it. Just saying. In an attempt to escape the ship, the sailors left the boat. So Paul comes and says, hey guys, I got a word. I got a prophetic word. I got a spiritual download. I had an angelic encounter. And if we, as long as we all stay on the ship, we're going to survive. What's the next response? They all try to jump ship. <laughs> because they had no ear for the spiritual counsel. They had no ear for the spiritual word. They walked by flesh and by sight. This so often is what the case is. As soon as things go wrong, everybody wants to go jump ship. Something going wrong in your marriage? Jump ship. Something going wrong in your job? Jump ship. Something you don't like about the church? Jump ship. On and on and on it goes. Don't like Jesus? Not going the way you want? Jump ship. I'm going back to whatever it was. Well, good luck with you. Good luck with that. People leave Christ all the time. They leave the faith. They either go into stupidity because they walked with Jesus and they became with Jesus and they're expecting something. They're expecting fairy Jesus where everything's just comfort and ease. Everything's just peace, love, and safety. Christianity is as dangerous as it comes, man. It's a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of transformation. It's a kingdom of change every, in every aspect. Or what we do as Christians is we go into legalism. So where we depart the Lord, we depart back into passivity or we depart into legalism. That's what the church at Galatia did. They went into legalism. Things weren't working out the way they wanted. They had a problem with this whole grace thing. There's too much grace going on here. There's not enough holiness. We've got to get a little more holiness in the church. That's what they were doing. And Paul says, who has bewitched you foolish Galatians that you should depart from the gospel you've known? If I or an angel of light preach you another gospel other than the one you've heard, let them be accursed. What they had done is they'd gone into legalism. Got to have holiness. Got to put everybody on lockdown. Holy Spirit doesn't know how to run his church. We need to run the church for him. We need to control people's lives. And what Paul told them is you've departed Christ. That attitude is a departure from the gospel of grace. Do your own research. Book of Galatians. Read it. Unless these men stay with the ship, they can't be saved. Say it with me. Stay with the ship. Stay with the word he's told you. Stay at the place. Stay doing the things. Whatever it is he said, stay with it. Until he changes course, you don't. So the soldiers cut the rope and they got rid of the lifeboat. Just before they, Paul urged them to eat. It's been 14 days since you guys have eaten. You got to have this food. Goes on. Then he takes the bread and he breaks it in the middle of the storm. Gives thanks. Would you do that? I don't know if I would do that. I wouldn't go outside in a hurricane and go, Jesus, I just want to thank you for everything that's going on here. Anyway, next slide. Storms do several things. Then we're just going to go quick. They awaken us. They awaken us to the things that really matter. Anybody, did anybody evacuate? What did you take with you? If you had to take three things if you were evacuating, what would you take? 
Just think about it. You don't have to answer. You, what, you would re, what you would quickly realize is all the stuff that doesn't matter. Because you're in the middle of something. And you're on, based on this position. And all of a sudden, you're going to really realize where the value is. And what, what students do, and these types of things do, is they show us where the value is not. And they point to what the, where the value is. The sailors had to hurl the cargo over the over ship. They had to get rid of all the cargo. Everything they were trying to protect didn't matter. They had to get rid of it. Storms humble us, right? They make us realize that we're not sufficient in ourselves. They make us realize that we really don't have a lot of control over a lot of things. Things happen. The centurion and the ship's captain and the owner, they were very self-assured, very confident. Once that storm hit, they didn't know anything. They didn't know anything. Their confidence went way down. What they thought they knew went way down. Recognize our abilities and to, and to recognize our inabilities and point to his ability. To recognize where we are weak and his strength is perfected. Where? Where is Jesus' strength? My strength is perfected in your weakness. Storm is, call, is to call us, get us to call upon the Lord and to reach out. A lot of people are in churches this morning, haven't been in church in years, 18 months, 6 months. All of a sudden, the storms open their eyes. Well, it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's getting you to reorient yourself back to the Lord. It's getting you to call upon the Lord. It's getting you to reach out to the Lord. It's either going to soften your heart or it's going to harden your heart. It's going to do one or two things. I don't need God. Or you, oh, wow, I do need the Lord. That's what these circumstances do. They humble us. Next slide. So if you're feeling humbled by the storm, God's work is being perfected in you. You should feel humbled. I feel humbled. <laughs> I'm like, wow. You know, I need to get rid of some stuff, man. Enable. They enable us. They enable us to do what? Serve others. They enable us to see that there's a greater joy in serving people less fortunate than we are. Amen. We should care for one another. The storm is to open up. Christians should shine as the light of the noonday in these times. Really, we should. If our neighbors need something, we should be the first ones helping them. We should be trying to help people. We're doing a can drive, so if you guys get your uh, emails, if you don't have the email, sign up a connection card. Danielle has organized a can drive, and it's going to the islands. So the islands were hit pretty bad, and so you know they don't have FEMA, right? <laughs> Where's who? Was it with you, Evie? Is it going to the islands? The keys, the lower keys. Exactly. Marathon, that whole area. So they're going, to be, they're going to be doing a can drive for the, for the, for the lower keys. And that's, so you get the email, bring in whatever you can. Is there going to be a list? Adult diapers. Can you make a list? Does she have a list? So you're going to get an email. So there's a lot of people down there and they're struggling. And they don't even have access. I live right by the keys. They got from mile marker 47 south. It's completely closed. So, you know, we should help out. It's how we demonstrate family. We help each other. We demonstrate faith through love and service. And we realize that there's a joy that comes from helping people worse off than you. Guess what? You got it bad, somebody else has it worse. Right? You got power, but you don't have any this. Well, somebody else doesn't have power. Well, you don't have power. Well, somebody in Marco Island doesn't have a house. You know? And some of these countries in the, in the Caribbean, they don't even have a nation anymore. Well, Barbuda, the guy, the, I guess the mayor, whoever that guy is, he's, whoever the governor is, he's saying they practically don't have a country anymore. It's that devastating. Somebody's got it worse than you. Storms awaken us to his presence. They cause us to feel, a storm, a storm will cause you to feel alone and isolated. What a storm does is it makes you afraid. Anybody with me? 
Everybody's freaking out. All the bloggers, oh, Jesus is coming. Oh, Jesus is coming. What, because there's a hurricane? Jesus is coming with or without the hurricane. I don't know what, what, what changed your perspective there. But what, fear, what happens is fear changes to hope when we see the Lord. So what happens is the storm is to get us to see the Lord and call upon the Lord. When we see the Lord, we have hope. When we have hope, we have faith. And faith leads to endurance. So if you don't have any endurance and you feel like you can't go on, you need faith. And if you say, I don't have any faith, well, then you need hope. And you say, I don't have any hope. Well, you need Jesus. Unto Jesus Christ our hope. When you see the Lord, you will have hope. Once you have hope, hope leads to faith, and faith leads to endurance. Faith leads to carrying on. The storm causes us to refocus our lives. Evaluate where you are. When they crashed on this island, they didn't even know where they were. They had to ask. They didn't have any idea where they were. They had to find, oh, we're on Malta? Oh, wow, how'd we end up on Malta? I don't even know. It causes us to refocus our lives. Where are you in your life, Christian? Are you where you want to be? The storm should shift your perspective. Evaluate where, excuse me, where you are going. Do you feel like you're going in the right direction? If not, why not? Next slide. How should we respond? Number one, examine the foundation. This type of thing, this type of stuff that goes on in our lives, we should look at the foundation. When any time a disaster happens and they come to look at your church, one of the things, are, or at your house, one of the things they're going to do is they're going to look at the foundation. What is your life built upon? Question. What have you built or what are you building your life on? Who or what are you living for? Here's the main question. What is the master passion of your life? What drives you? Whatever drives you is your God. A, a man's or a person's God is the master passion that's driving their life. Is it money? That's your God. Is it pleasure? That's your God. Is it status? That's your God. Is it success? That's your God. There's nothing wrong with those things so long as they're subservient to Christ. So long as all of those things are for his glory. Nothing wrong with money as long as it's for his glory. Nothing wrong with success as long as it's for his glory. Nothing wrong with influence as long as it's for its glory. But what we do is we elevate self, and it's all for us. So our, is, our, is what's driving your life, is that submitted unto Jesus? Is that in cooperation with his plan and purpose? And if it's not, why isn't it? And what needs to change? Story of Matthew 7, house built on sand, house built on rock. Story that goes is that the rain came upon both houses. The wind came upon both houses, and the flood came upon both houses. Both houses had it. Only one stood. So it's not an issue of whether the rain's going to come. The rain's going to come. It's not an issue of whether the winds are going to blow. The winds are going to blow. The floods are going to happen. Nobody wants it. Nobody's hoping for it. But the reality is, is it's going to happen. And the question is, is what am I built upon? Clear out the junk. We all got junk. We got debris. We got trees on the side of the road. I told my wife I want to take this opportunity to get rid of even more junk, so I'm trying to go through my closets and get rid of, anybody with me on that? You know, it's like, oh man, I don't need any of this stuff. They threw it all overboard. Clear out the junk. This is a common thread throughout the Bible. What is getting in the way of what God has called you to do? What is getting in the way of who God has called you to be? Get rid of it. Cast aside every, every weight that evilly, easily besets you. Take off and let us shed off the garments of the unfruitful works of darkness. It's a constant principle in the New Testament. Get rid of everything that's getting in the way of that. <laughs> run the race with endurance. This would be a scene, right? In ancient Greek, they used to run marathons and they used to run sprints naked. <laughs> really? And it's because they wanted aerodynamic. 
Now we have, I guess we got tight pants, stretchy pants, you know, now we wear stretchy pants and stretchy shirts, but that's how literally it was, is they wanted to run without anything on them. Get your bearings straight. Where are you? Where are you at? Where do you like it? I got one more slide. Are you where you want to be? Are you heading in the right direction? Where are you? The storm has happened. Where are we? Where am I at? You're on Malta. Oh, I'm on Malta. Okay. Do you even know where you are? Most people don't even have any clue where they are. They don't know where they are relationally. They don't know where they are spiritually. They don't know where they are financially. They don't know where any of the areas of their life is. They have no clue where they're at. No clue. First thing is knowing where you are. And the second thing is determining whether you like where you are. And if you don't like where you are, then you have to do something called change. If you don't like where you are, why not? What needs to change? Where does it need to change? And when will you start changing it? If you don't cross, say it with me, if I don't cross the bridge of change, nothing is going to change. You hear me say it all the time. Definition of stupidity. Einstein. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. What do you need to change? First of all, where are you? That was a question the Lord asked, did he not? In the garden? Where are you? What, Jesus didn't know where he was? Of course Jesus knew where he was. He wanted to know, Adam, do you know where you are? Do you have any idea where you are, Adam? And Adam was clueless. Oh, no, I don't. I'm in the bushes somewhere. I'm in the trees. Do you know where you're at? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are relationally? Do you know who you are spiritually? Do you, are, do you know where you are? Where are you? And if you don't, the Lord to start showing you where you are. And don't be afraid if you don't like it. That's okay. You probably won't. Because <laughs> he wants you to change. Most, if you've never determined where you are, you're probably not going to like it when it's revealed. That's why people don't ask. They don't ask that question because they don't like the answer. Or they know the answer is going to be negative. But if you don't make the change, if you don't know where you are, you can never make the change. Next slide. You've got to cross the bridge of change. Shake it off, last slide. Acts chapter 8, it shows you. They left a city called Fairhaven, right? Anybody know Fairweather people? They're with you, they hate you, they're with you, they hate you. I love you, I don't, I'm not here, I am. So they're on a journey from the port of Fairhaven. It's kind of like Paul's journey with them. They didn't listen to Paul. What do you got to say, Paul? You don't know what you're talking about. Then Paul tells them something really good, saves everybody's lives. Paul, you're awesome. Then they land on the island, they build a fire. Paul's just trying to dry himself off, and what happens to him? Anybody know? A snake jumps out of the fire and bites the brother on the hand. I mean, seriously? Come on, man. You know what I mean? It's like, Gah! I'm like, oh my gosh. And so once that happened, everybody observed, and they said, you're a murderer. This is why this has happened to you, because this is who you are. And then when he pulled it off, and he was able to, and he, nothing happened to him, they said, you're a god. You see how people's attitudes are? And what happens is, this is very common, and so here's the warning. What ends up happening is we judge people according to our perceptions. The way they perceived him was their judgment on him. But they had no knowledge of the whole story. They had no knowledge that he had a mandate on his life. They had no knowledge that he had a call of God on his life. They had no knowledge that he served the most powerful God of all. They had none of that knowledge but yet they judged him based upon what they perceived. We need to be slow to judge. And the reason is, is we judge based upon perception. And do you know why? You know why we need to be slow? Because you will be judged based upon perception. 
Oh no, it'll never happen to me. Keep telling yourself that. People judge you based upon perception. And what God has told us to do, the Bible says as a man sees, man is moved by what he sees. That's what it tells us. God is moved by the heart, but man is moved by what they see, their perception. So what we have to do is we have to judge people or look at people regarding no one according to the flesh, but according to the heart. What is the heart of the person? What is the heart of the matter? That's how we look at people. And the reason that we do that is because everybody else goes this way. God's saying, you're not like that. Go this way. You don't want to be judged by your perceptions, do you? Do you want people to judge you by how they see you? I guarantee you, you don't. You want to be judged upon the content of your character, not upon what somebody sees you as or perceives you to be. You ever had that happen to you? You ever have people say bad things about you and it's like completely not true? You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Anyone at all? Facebook, email, you know, whatever, text, whatever, however that works out, whatever that reality is. Now here's the big one. Here's the last one. This is going to help you. So we're going to, on the way out the door, this is a really good one. So just hold on. I know I'm a little long, but I love you. And the AC's on, so that's positive, right? <laughs> Paul said, you should have listened to me. But because you didn't, this has to happen now. Here's a big problem. Say this with me. If option A, if option a is no longer available, what options are still available? A big thing that keeps people from moving forward is they want option A when option A is already passed. Most of the time, this is the, here's the good news, God tells us something. He gives us option A. We don't listen. We're like these people. We don't listen. So now option A evaporates. And God's like, well, if you would have listened to me, we could have had option A. Well, we don't have option A now, so here's what we need to do. And what keeps people from moving forward is they get stuck on option A. But I want option A. Option A, the door's closed. The issue isn't this is over. It's done. You don't have that available to you anymore. What you have to do is wake up and see what is and move into what is available. This is what keeps people from moving forward. They have marriages that fall apart and they want to go back to option A when option A is gone. Just saying. This is a reality. They want to go back to the job they had before they screwed it up. Option A is gone. You understand what I'm saying? They want to go back to something that's no longer available to them. And what it causes them to do, what it causes people to do, is get stuck in a moment. If you can recover option A, go recover option A. But if you can't, then move on to option B. You should have, but now. This is what needs to happen. What life is, like, plays over, right? I'm going to tell you something somebody told me a long time ago. Right? <laughs> I have a few of these, but... Somebody told me this. They told me, Kevin, life and your future is a series of opening and closing doors. You must learn to recognize the open door when it's present and move into it. And you must learn to recognize when the door has moved on and moved into the next one. If you don't, you'll be, we are time travelers and we're going in one direction, forward. You can't go back. I wish we could go back. Anybody want to hit rewind? I'd like to go back 10 years. You know what I'm saying? I'd like to go back eight years. Just give me eight. Give me seven. I'll take six at this point. <laughs> can I go back six years? We can't. Option A is no longer available. 
People lament their children. I should have done this with my kids. Option A is gone. Have an opportunity with their grandchildren. That's option B. I should have valued my children when that was small. I should have valued them more, but I didn't. So they go over here and like sad sack, they go and bury their head in the sand. Option A is gone. What's option B? You have grandchildren, don't you? B begin that. Start that. You didn't, maybe you missed a childhood relationship with your kids. Have an adult one. How about that? And relive what your memories through the child. How about that? There's always a period of restoration. There's always another option. It just may not be the option that you want. You understand that? It's very powerful. This is a devastator to a lot of people's lives. Is they, ca they can't get past option A. They can't get past what was or what's gone. God wants us to. Your house is gone. Well, I loved living there. It was a great house. Well, I don't have a house anymore. What's option B? You know, people suffering losses, all kinds of losses. I wish I still had that. You don't. Okay? Plays over. People say, oh, that's harsh. It, it, yeah, it may seem harsh, but it's true. You don't want to get stuck. You want to move forward. Would you agree? Yeah. All right. Yeah. God loves you. <laughs> Right, let me bless you. Father, I thank you so much for these wonderful people. I thank you for your heart to them. I thank you for the love that you have for them. God, I just put your power upon their lives. I put your passion upon their lives. I put your purposes upon their lives. Lord, I just declare that we not stay the same. That I not stay the same. This church, these people, we not stay the same. We're willing to restore what we can restore. We're willing to repair what we can repair. And we're also willing to move on beyond what we cannot and move into a hopeful future, knowing that you've got something good. You're a good God, and you've always got, you've got something better. You take us from glory to glory, and what's been lost is nothing compared to what we can gain if we will learn from the encounter and learn from the experience. So Father, I just thank you for that. I honor you for that. I bless you. I bless you for this time, for this season, for what you're doing in the lives of these people. And we just thank you for that. And let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. So